Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Andrew Bowser. And I'm Sapphire Sandalo. And welcome to Alter Weekly. Coming up on the show, we talk with filmmakers Jacob Chase and Jill Gavarkazian about what it takes to turn a short into a feature. Jacob with his short Larry that became Amblin's Come Play, and Jill with her alter short The Stylist. Then we let you know what we're watching next on The Alter Society. But first, we got to bring back our runaway hit of a segment from last week, which is Spiritually Cool. It's the spiritually cool chicken. <laughs> it sounds like I'm a I'm a youth pastor that's trying to make the Bible hip. Hey guys, that's exactly what it sounds like. Let's get spiritually cool. Come on, let's sit crisscross Who's applesauce. Down with Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> gather around. You know, people say Jesus freak like it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so once again, I have nothing spiritually cool to report. But do you? You know I do, Bowser. All right. Um, okay, so I'll I'll try to make this uh, succinct. <laughs> okay. But it began uh, a couple months ago. Somebody had reached out to me. His name is Mike Cleland. And he reached out to me because he heard me on another podcast. And he wanted to share his research and life's work with me. Um, apparently, he has spent the last decade uh, studying the connection between owls, UFOs, and death. And this is something that I have never heard of. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll talk to you, whatever. And I interviewed him, and it was one of the wildest interviews I've ever had. Wow. But I didn't think, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And so that episode comes out next week on my podcast, other podcasts. And I hadn't listened to his interview again until I started editing it this week. So, like, uh, about a week ago. And... In the audio, he does say at one point, he goes, you know, you're going to start seeing owls everywhere now. And the next day, <laughs> somebody, one of my friends who um, was part of my batok ceremony. So I realize people can't see, but my Filipino tattoo. Yeah. Um, and she was one of the stretchers for it. And she messaged me on Instagram and was like, did you say that you had an owl experience? I feel like it was you. And I was like, no, that wasn't me. I think you're thinking of someone else. And she goes, huh, well, I feel like I should send this to you. She sent me this article about this Filipino goddess named Zalika Mata, who's appear- she appears as an owl to certain people. And she also um, is covered in eyeballs. And I have just always drawn eyes, like ever since I was a kid, eyes on everything. Wow. So I was like, whoa. Yeah, and I felt like I just really resonated with her. And so I drew her. And then ever since then, I kid you not, dude, I have been seeing owls freaking everywhere. Not physical owls, but symbolic owls. And I I just know that I am going to see a physical one soon, probably. So what is it? What is it? What does it mean? I mean, does it mean the same thing to you that it meant to this guy who had done research about owls and UFOs? Or do they hold different Um, meanings in the different contexts? 
It depends. So they can have multiple meanings. Um, but also what what is extra weird is that the my cousins and my friend that I have been sharing these owl experiences with, they're also having it too and they share it with me. <laughs> Um, and we're all seeing owls now. Um, Everybody's seeing owls. (laughs) You're going to start seeing them too. But here's the thing though. You could look at this as simply just me noticing them because they're on my mind. But like that is part of what this is. You know, like I am more aware of the owls. So now I am seeing the owls. And basically (laughs) owls represent. Okay. So owls can fly through the night. Um, very quietly and without any problem. You know, they're able to see through the darkness. So one meaning of owls is that when they show up, it means that you need to search within your own darkness and figure out some shit so that you wow. can move on with your life. So that's like that's one meaning. Heavy. That's the one that, Yeah. <laughs> that's like one one way of looking at it. They are also omens of death, which is the way that I'm Choosing not to see it, but it might, that actually might be <laughs> what's going on. No, I yeah. vote, I vote no on the omen from death. <laughs> Can I do that? I don't know so, if that's yeah. how it works. I, I mean, I'll, yes, I'll take your vote. Okay. So where do you think this leads or is it just an ongoing thing? You're going to look out for these owls and you're going to try to discern what it means as you investigate things deep within yourself. Yeah, I think I think they're showing up for me right now because I am doing a lot of, um, I am doing a lot of searching within my own darkness. That sounds so weird, but that's what I'm doing. Um, And so I think that it's a reminder to keep doing that. And that I think it's also just like a warning of like, there's a lot of change about to happen for me, good or bad. Wow. But I should be prepared for it. Well, youth pastor Pat just says, take it easy, man. (laughs) Chill with those omens from death. (laughs) News Slash. That's right. It's time for your News Slash. Bruce Campbell is back as Ash in Evil Dead, The Game. The game will feature co-op and PvP action, and it's going to include Bruce Campbell as Ash, but also Dana DiLorenzo as Kelly Maxwell from the Stars series Ash vs. Evil Dead. Boss Team Games and Sabre Interactive are behind the title, which will come to PlayStation 5, Xbox Series, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC in 2021. Adidas is releasing another horror-themed pair of sneakers, this time inspired by Gremlins. The shoes are called the Christmas Monster Shoes, and they're made to look like you're wearing gizmo on your feet. They're a gremlinized pair of Stan Smiths, and they will retail for about 120 bucks. They'll be available December 19th through select retailers. Disney announces an alien TV show for FX and Hulu. FX teases, expect a scary thrill ride set not too far in the future here on Earth. By blending both the timeless horror of the first alien film with the nonstop action of the second, it's going to be a scary thrill ride that will blow people back in their seats. The show is coming to you from Legion and Fargo executive producer Noah Hawley. And that's it. That's your News Slash. News Slash. Jacob Chase is a writer and director who found himself in the middle of a bidding war after his horror short Larry went viral. Here's our conversation with him about how Larry made his way to the big screen in Amblin's Come Play. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you here and have this conversation. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So let's start at the top with the short film, Larry. 
How did that come about? Where did the idea for Larry come from? Yeah, so <laughs> so the short film really was kind of something I made on a whim. Um, I used to run this haunted house uh, called Sherwood Scare that, that was in Los Angeles uh, for many fun. years. Uh, and I, I miss <laughs> it to this day. Um, but I, I had this, uh, I had made this costume for one of the years of the haunted house, this big stilts man uh, with these long gangly legs. And I had him still laying around in my garage. Um, and I wanted to do something spooky because I, I sort of hadn't done the haunt for a few years because uh, I was working a lot. And, and I was like, I want to do something scary with my friends. I got all of my haunted house crew back together. And I was like, I have this costume. Let's put him in a short film. And I... You know, I figured out the, the parking booth, which seemed like a creepy environment. And also, you know, when you're making a short film, you try to do stuff low budget. So it's like, oh, one person in a booth in a parking <laughs> lot. That could work. Um, and yeah, I brought the costume out and and it was great. I don't know. I mean, I, I tried to come up with a spooky backstory for this creature. And really, the goal was to just create something kind of atmospheric and and tapped into that uh, suspense that I loved creating from my haunted house days uh, in a, you know, filmed version. So that's where that started. I love that it came from your experiences at a haunt. I had no idea. Did, that's... wait, when you say you ran it, was it like one that you started from scratch or you like worked at one? Yeah, yeah, it was from scratch. Uh, me and my best friends and my now wife, uh, we uh, created it in this like big basketball court in Northridge. And I mean, it was amazing. We had 10,000 people a year come through. We, we would run through the whole month wow. of Halloween. Um, it was all to raise money for a, a charity, uh, Big Worm Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And I mean, it, creatively, it was so fulfilling. And there's nothing like standing at the exit and uh, watching people running out screaming and laughing and just having a great time. Um, so really, I took so much of what I learned doing that, uh, both to the short and then ultimately the, the feature. That's so that's cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Were that's you so ever cool. right? Were you ever like a home haunt kind of person? Like, where you built oh, yeah. a haunt? Like for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. From from when I was a kid. I mean, like in my first exposure to like horror stuff was I was a little kid when when Horror Nights started at Universal because I grew up in L.A. and it was before it was called Horror Nights. It was just a single haunted house in a parking garage there and. I wanted to go. I begged my mom to take me. I was way too young or at least too scared. <laughs> and we like, we waited in line. First room, this like clown popped out of a, a jack in the box. I started crying. I made my mom <laughs> leave after waiting all that time. Um, but then oh somehow like, I don't know if it was her idea or mine, but she brought me back the next day. They had like a, like a lights on experience where you could just go through it without the scares. Mm -hmm. And I was like, totally hooked by that and I had previously I was an actor as a kid so I had done a lot of theater and and it felt like theater as soon as I like saw sort of the behind the scenes of it all and I, it was either that year or the next year that I started like forcing my friends to come over during Halloween and like making my own haunted house at home and I did it all through high school as well um and then like you know I had my regular life that didn't involve haunted houses for a while but then after college um I, we we had been involved in this charity and it, it started as like hey let's let's do a haunted house but like make it on a bigger scale and and do it for this charity and it just kept growing year after year and um i mean it, it was an amazing experience so much fun and a ton of work uh you know which is why we just i couldn't do it anymore at a certain point um, yeah 
but I loved it and, and I learned a lot. I mean, it, and I made some of my best friends. Do you think you'll ever um, do another haunt in the future, near future? I, I would love to. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, you know, COVID has obviously uh, right. uh, hurt a lot of us in a lot of ways, but one of the things I was most looking forward to was like ha- potentially having a presence at Horror Nights with, with Come Play this year. Um, oh. Universal and Focus were, were our, our home studio. And oh, would have been full uh, circle. Been so cool, right? It would have been so cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was something we had dreamed about the whole time making the movie and like, you know, and then unfortunately, obviously things went the way they went. So. Ah, I mean, there's always next year. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm going to keep making movies, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed. And, and if I could eventually get a Horror Nights maze, that is the ultimate goal for me. Oh, that's awesome. I'm obsessed is... with mazes and haunts, so I can yeah. talk about this forever. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no I am too. I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with the idea that you that you grew up with it because I was such <laughs> a scaredy cat as a kid. Um, we didn't do a lot of that. It wasn't also, it wasn't, I was allowed to do sweet spirit parties, which were what my what? church would do for Halloween. Wait, <laughs> when, what? <laughs> is, what is this? It was because I, I grew up in a, in a church and my family was pretty religious. And so we weren't allowed to do Halloween events. My parents let me trick or treat, but you know, on the side, but, uh, public facing, I was allowed to go to a sweet spirit party at my church and you could just dress like biblical characters. Stop oh, it. Stop. <laughs> so like <laughs> Jacob's childhood and mine on a spectrum, we're, we're at the far different ends of that spectrum. But I would always try to dress as like, um, you know, Jonah and the whale. And I'd be like inside the belly of the whale and I had like a little whale on my shoulder and I was bloodied up and stuff. I still, I, tr- I tried to get spooky with it, but it was right. hard. Well, so as an adult, when, when you were doing these haunts, were you already a filmmaker? Were you already making films? Um, how, how was yeah. that blending into your, to your time as somebody also running haunts? Yeah, so so I was. I mean, I've been aiming to be a filmmaker since I was eight years old, basically, when I started working on a set as an actor, um, and I saw what directors did, and I was like, I want to do that, uh, <laughs> you know, more than this acting thing. And and around the time of the haunted house is when I started. To, I had to make the decision of like, I just I can't take three months off of the year to make this haunted house anymore because like I need to you know, turn in this pilot script or this, you know, feature. And, and so I had to like leave that behind to just like keep working on my writing career. And, and during that entire period, you know, I kept making short films, basically. I, I, you know, I wanted to keep being able to one, not go crazy because like when I wasn't making anything, I felt a little bit like I'm just writing all these documents that aren't getting made. Uh, And, you know, a bunch of shorts sort of like did well for me in terms of like, getting me meetings or considered or whatever, but like it wasn't until I made come play um, or Larry actually, you know, this is the short um, that, that people really were like, Oh, I want to take one of your shorts and like actually make it into a feature. So um, that was definitely a turning point on the directing side uh, for me, for sure. And when you made that short, was the feature already fleshed out in your head? Was the intention that this is a proof of concept and it's a stepping stone to a feature? Or did you not have the feature script written or the creative worked out yet for the, for the feature version? 
Yeah, I had no idea. I, I did not make it with any sort of hubris that I would be able to, you know, follow in the footsteps of Sandberg or, or something and, and make a, a feature out of it. I, I really just tried to make something cool on, on a, as a short film. Um, and, you know, what, what happened was I, I, I made the short, I shared it with my agents and uh, they started you know, they were like, oh, this is really cool. Um, you know, but they say that about all my short films. So I was like, okay. And then they started sharing it with with uh, sort of the horror companies. Um, and, I, you know, I, it was a very fortunate position that a lot of people really loved the shorts. And I started getting a lot of, uh, you know, enthusiastic interest um, for what the feature would be. And uh, I will tell you the most sort of like, Hollywood, like this is amazing. It, this is this this is a story that's both like how terrible Hollywood is and how great it is all at once. But <laughs> I had been so this was happening all while I had I had this show that got um, sent to pilot that I created at ABC called Harmony, and we were in um, pre production on that show, and we were a couple weeks from shooting. Um, it was very exciting, uh, and. Uh, I, I was getting all these like calls about Larry and I was like, I don't have time. I can't do any of those meetings and I have no idea what the feature is. So like, I can't do any of that. Um, and then one day on a Friday, uh, ABC pulled the plug on my show and they said, we're not going to shoot it anymore. Like a couple weeks from shooting. It was devastating. Wow. Wow. We, you know, we had spent so much money with the, the sets were, you know, starting to be built and like we were cast and crewed and, you know, it was nuts. Um, devastated. I was at home, uh, right after that call, I was like literally in bed, just in tears. And my wife uh, uh, came in the room and she was like, you know, hey, like people are really interested in Larry. Like, why don't you like try to figure out what that feature is and just like work on the next thing. And, you know, uh, I did like that day, that same Friday, I very quickly figured out what the feature um, could be. Um, you know, granted, I took inspiration from like characters and stuff that I was interested in, in telling a movie about already. Um, my wife works with kids on the spectrum. And so I had long been interested in trying to like center a, a film, a narrative around a young boy who's nonverbal and, and autistic. Um, and this ended up feeling like the, the perfect scenario of, you know, a character who needs their technology to communicate uh, and a technology that's turning on, on your main character. Um, anyway, so I figured it out that Friday. Um, and the next week I took all those meetings that I had been putting off uh, and, and by that next Friday, I had sold it to, to Amblin, um, in this wow. competitive situation that was crazy. I mean, it was, uh, definitely the most like Hollywood thing that had happened to me in all my years writing, <laughs> um, uh, for the studios. So, so as you sit down to write the feature of come play, what are some of the initial obstacles, if any, as you're fleshing out the creative that was much shorter in Larry? What were some of the initial roadblocks uh, that you had to work your way around? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one was the rules. Like the short film kind of doesn't have any rules. It's just sort of like there's a there's a, a you know digital sort of storybook that tells you a story about this character and then he comes to life. That's kind of all the short is, and it doesn't really make sense like the way he's like there and then not there and. Um, and I, so really like the biggest thing was just solidifying what those rules are. And, and mm -hmm. I, you know, early on, I came up with the idea of like, 
Well, because the other thing is, like, you just don't want to see him too much. Like, in a horror movie, like, you start seeing a character too much, it loses its, you know, scariness quite quickly. So I came up with this idea of, like, oh, you can only see this monster through your devices. Um, you know, if you hold up your phone or your camera or whatever. And, and once I sort of cracked that idea... Um, a lot of the sort of set pieces started falling into place more hmm. um, because suddenly you have this, you know, sort of ghost essentially, but but it, it's a ghost that has like, it's tactile, you can touch him, you can feel him, he can interact with the environment, but you just can't see him. Um, it was able to lead to some pretty cool, I thought, ideas. Um, that was probably the biggest, like, I guess, challenge. Uh, you know, the rest was honestly like the short I sort of, put away for the most part like it was its own thing and uh, yes it was inspiration for this but really this was a brand new story a brand new movie about oliver and it was really just like trying to tell the story about this family and this kid who's like desperate to communicate with the world um and you know and making this movie sort of about loneliness and once i sort of put the short away from out of my mind it, it became much easier to just treat it like any other feature i would write I've got another very specific question. <laughs> when you when you go to write something like this, do you know the uh, the budget scope so that you're writing for a specific ceiling, or has that is that yet to be determined when you set out to write the feature? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I I, I think again, like I've done the writing part enough to know sort of what what is within the budget limits and and what's not. Um, and so I think I wrote something that the biggest expense was always going to be, you know, one, working with a kid. I mean, that's incredibly expensive because it's just more time and more days because you can only have them on set so much. And uh, But then also the, the big puppet, because uh, I wanted to do Larry as a practical uh, monster. And so, you know, I think a misconception is like, oh, doing it practically is cheaper, but like that's usually not the case and and in our case it certainly wasn't i mean it was um you know it, it was a big uh battle for me to like get everyone to agree to like let's do it practically um and then knowing like there's going to be a big line item for the vfx as well to like help you know augment the the practical monster and things like that um so you know those were the big expenses but overall i mean it's a pretty small movie really so in shooting a practical monster, we've had a discussion on this show specifically about how films in the 80s really knew how to shoot their monsters practically. Mm -hmm. And uh, you think about sequences like American Werewolf in London or one of my favorites, Pumpkinhead, um, and they really treat the monster well with their coverage and they sell it. Uh, mm -hmm. Was there a learning curve to that? Had you shot something like that before where you were responsible for selling the believability of this practical monster? Because I think it is very well sold in the film. Um, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it was very important to me. I don't know that it was a learning curve so much as just planning. I mean, I, I'm mm -hmm. a big planner anyway. I mean, I you know, I storyboard everything and... Um, especially when you're working with a practical thing. I mean, like American Werewolf in London is like so carefully planned. There's so many models made for those like one or two shots, right? And uh, that's just not something people are used to now because uh, it's like the idea of, of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on an arm that's going to be used in one shot is, is seems crazy to a studio, understandably, because like for that amount of money, we can try so many different versions and VFX and we can move the camera around and do whatever we want. Um, so, 
you know, I, I, I think for me, there wasn't, I mean, the whole process is a learning curve, but this particular part of it um, was not like, that didn't scare me so much. It excited me. I mean, it was like the idea of being able to know what you're getting on set is, is mm-hmm. so important because, you know, if, if we lined up a shot and the, the creature didn't look good, like we would know right there and you could like move the camera, right? Um, or change the lighting. Uh, and, and so because we planned so much and the, the four puppeteers who, who operated Larry, like I would give them sort of direction and what I was wanting from the scene, like a few days, I tried to always do this, like a few days before we were shooting the scene so that they would like come in after hours and like walk the set and like practice those moves so that when we were shooting it, we weren't like waiting for them to like figure out how to like get him to walk over here without sort of knocking into the counter or whatever. Um, so it was just practice and, and preparation, I think. Uh, and I, I hope it worked. I mean, it's, you know, it does feel, uh, I think it me- is meaningful when something is really there. Uh, I-, I can tell when the actors are, are interacting with something. Um, I don't think it's right for every scenario, but for this one, it, it did feel appropriate. So what was it like working with the awesome child actors in your cast? Like, how did you handle scaring them on set and keeping them in the right headspace for this film? (laughs) Well, I I will say a couple things. One, I mean, one of the big reasons I wanted to do it practically was to scare kids uh, or (laughs) or to at least have them know what's in the scene with them. Right. Um, So they're not just interacting with like a tennis ball or or a guy in a green suit. Um, uh, it helps the adult actors as well, I think. Um, so there was that. Also, as I mentioned before, like I was a, an actor when I was a kid, and and so I was their age when I was on sets as well. And I remember pretty clearly like the things I I liked about directors when they'd work with me, and things I didn't like. Um, it definitely, it's for me anyway. It was never about treating them like. I mean, they're kids, so like you want them to have fun. It was always trying to create an environment where it's like you want to come to set, you want to like be with your friends, you you are laughing between takes, right? You're not trying to make the set uh-huh. like a gloomy place, even if the, the movie itself has, you know, dark themes and, and scenes. Um, and then to the to the point of like, getting them scared, I mean, I, you know, I would do little tricks, like I would have music playing on set sometimes during certain scenes or, uh, but it was all in good fun. I mean, as an example of like, one of the kid things we did, like we were shooting on Halloween and, you know, I, I felt bad about that. And so we, we had the costume department like made Edgy's, he was played Oliver, um, like his favorite uh, anime character made like a custom costume for him. We set up all the departments oh, as cool. like different trick-or-treating sec- uh, sections so we could go trick-or-treating. The grip department made a haunted house in the grip truck, which was super cool. Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah, it was just one of the most fun days on set. We all dressed up in costume. Um, it was awesome. You know, it's like, I, what I love is that, um, I mean, a huge part of why uh, haunts are so fun is the interactive element. And it, I think it's really cool that throughout this conversation, we see we can see how your love for haunts translates into the films that you make. Like that's everything true. you described, it's... You know, you're, you're thinking about like, okay, how are the actors responding to the story and what's going on? And even like what you just said about how your Halloween was on set, it's just like, that's so cool. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's like, you know, that same feeling of uh, being at the end of a haunted house and watching people run out screaming at something you created 
uh, is the same feeling as like being in a movie theater and watching people watch your movie. Yeah. You know, and that's obviously the big bummer about this COVID of it all is like I didn't get that experience as much as I would have liked. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I got a little bit. I mean, I, I saw it in the closest theaters here that I, I could find. And, and, you know, there was I, I still got to see a bit of those reactions. Um, but, you know. Hopefully next time we, it's not during a pandemic, my next movie comes out and we, I can see more of that. <laughs> we hope so too. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Gillian Jacobs, uh, why was she your choice for the mother? I think she's such a dynamic performer and I love seeing her in, in a horror film. Um, was it her background in comedy? Was there something to that that you felt like would bring some levity into the world? What was it that made her the choice? Yeah, I mean, it was a few things. One, I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I've just, I loved her work, um, of course, in her comedic stuff. But also, like, if you look at a show like Love, you know, there's a lot of darkness in that show yeah. as well. And she's so, I find a lot of comedic actors are so, um, you know, the best comedy comes from just truth. And, and she's so good at just accessing that truth um, and, and not making anything feel stagey. Um, and then also like I, you know, when I met with her, she just had such an empathy for not only Sarah's character, but Oliver's character. And we just had such a, um, a fruitful conversation and she's a, a director herself. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and so she just, you know, really responded to the idea of how I wanted to shoot the film and these, you know, a lot of long wonders and the practical monster and all that. And we just, I don't know, we just got along really well. And, and, and with her connection to the character, it just felt like she was kind of perfect for it. So it was, I'm, I'm really happy, you know, with that, with that choice and, and the same for John Gallagher Jr. I mean, he's, he's, you know, known for, you know, a lot of comedy stuff as well. And he's just so authentic in everything he does. He's so lovable and, and has such empathy for the characters he plays. And I, I think when, when actors can sort of have that empathy for who they're playing, whether they are, are good guys or bad guys or somewhere in the middle, like, I, I just think there's an, uh, an authenticity that comes with that. Um, you know, and I, I wanted to try to create something that felt grounded, like it was this family that, that was real and this, this sort of, you know, very abnormal experience they go through is the only sort of strange thing in the world, right? It's like, other than that, this is a very uh, typical family. So, you know, I, I just, that's why I cast sort of the, the, the adults that I did um, sort of around Oliver. And, and you know, I think they, they became kind of a family on set. It was, it was very sad the, the last day of us all together. When you sell something like this to Amblin specifically, does the concept then in your mind shift at all towards a tone that we we know as an Amblin tone? Like if you had sold this to a different studio, would you have shifted the the creative to match the tone of of that ilk of film? Was there a part of you that thought, well, Amblin, so, you know, the family in E.T., the, the dinner table scenes. Uh, <laughs> did that influence the tone of where the, the feature eventually went? I mean, honestly... No, I, I it it influenced where we sold it um, because yeah. what I wanted to make was the movie I made and right. and this tone that was you know it's something that that in my mind does harken back to like the films I grew up loving and and that's not afraid to scare kids right that is that feels real that deals with real issues 
of divorce and and family separation and the the challenges of being a parent and a kid right um in the larger context of this sort of like very exciting thing that's happening um that's what i wanted to make and so when amblin became one of the parties that was making an offer on it it was very much like oh like that's what i had in my mind like that seems like the right partner to me um so so yeah i mean it, it influenced where where i sold it for sure and you know i obviously like when you can get steven spielberg's uh, involvement in something it's hard to like sell it anywhere else it's like <laughs> I, I want that experience so I, I was very fortunate to get that experience yeah was there it did you ever get any specific word from him on the property did he weigh in or give oh, any yeah. feedback yeah, yeah he was he was quite involved i mean not like he certainly not day to day but he like came in uh, sort of at key moments, you know, read the first draft of the script. Um, I mean, he greenlit it, uh, you know, after reading it the first time, which was amazing. And, you know, he had notes on the script. And, and so, you know, I had to sort of like deal with that of like, how do I like, you know, argue with Steven Spielberg, <laughs> you know, my idol. Um, uh, but I figured it out. And, uh, and then he, you know, he'd watch dailies when we were shooting and, and I would just sort of hear like, he's happy. Uh, and then in post, he, he became more involved and he he came into the edit a few times. And um, that was amazing to just like sit with him on the couch and and like go over his notes on the on the edit and like try different things with him and, you know, and, and have creative arguments about things. Uh, and then also just get to hear um, amazing stories from from making, you know, all my favorite movies. So it was very special and I mean, I, you know, truly will will never forget um, getting to just like work with him, uh, you know, on this level. It's it's I don't know. It's something that very few people get. So I, I know how lucky I am. Can you tell us what references you sent the sound designer for the creature sounds in the film? They were like such an interesting blend of digital and organic. Yeah, it was a challenge to get it right. Um, but they did an amazing job. Um at, at Formosa, uh, Joe Zubin was our, our main sound designer there. And and basically what I, I would talk about a lot, you know, with the sound was less of like specific sounds and more about an emotion. Um, hmm. You know, I wanted him, uh, my goal with Larry was to always make somebody that was one, yes, scary, but he didn't mean to be. He was, he's more of like a Frankenstein's monster kind of character who is hurting people, but un you know, he doesn't mean to, he is, he's his own, you know, he doesn't realize his strength, that kind of thing. Like he's, he's, I always saw him as someone who is legitimately trying to find a friend. He's someone who's very lonely and he's pained all the time. And so I would talk about like, I wanted to, I wanted to sound painful when he's walking. I wanted to sound like, hmm. like just moving from one room to the other is takes all of the effort in him. I want to somehow feel with his like the hollowness of his bones, like the hollowness of his soul, um, and, and sort of like a, a, a you know a loneliness in just that that hollowness. Um, and so we started you know looking for things like sort of hollow tree trunks and like how those sound when mm. they sort of move in the wind, um, things like that. And then like his moaning and and the sounds he makes very much sort of mirror. Um, our main character Oliver and and I wanted to sort of like mm-hmm. you know in the same way that I think we empathize with Oliver, um, 
I want to I wanted to sort of carry that empathy over to Larry and in, in sort of sharing some sound elements between them. And in fact, Larry's voice later, um, which is of course augmented a lot, but it is primarily Eji's voice um, who plays Oliver. Like I had him record those those lines of dialogue. Uh, and then we, you know, we fussed with it to sort of be that sort of mix between, um, you, you know, uh, practical or, or, or for, you know, real and digital, basically. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it was all just trying to create a feeling more than mm-hmm. anything. And and then, of course, you know, then you start trying to make it creepy as well. But it but it, it came from a place of just genuine um, compassion for the character, even though he's kind of the villain. Um, you know, is trying to make someone that almost in the sound, because he doesn't talk a lot, you know, in the sound, you could feel, uh, you could feel for him in some way. Well, thank you so much, Jacob. This has been a really insightful conversation. Uh, we're glad to have had you. Well, thanks for having me. It was awesome talking to you guys. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Jill Gavargazian is a director and producer from Kansas City, Missouri. Much like the protagonist in her new film, The Stylist, she has been a hairstylist for over 10 years. We talk with her about the journey from short to feature and what led her from the salon chair to the director's chair. Thank you so much for joining us, Jill. We're really excited to talk with you. So you have a short up on Alter called The Stylist. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that short came to be? Well, it was my second short film as a director. And um, Call Girl, my first short, is actually on Alter as well. But I, I directed that and it was written by my friend Eric Havens. And... After we, re- we finished Call Girl, we were about to put it out. I just started to jot down notes about a hairstylist that kills people. It's just like the ba- a very basic concept. I've been a professional hairstylist for over 15 years now. So I just thought, how is that not already a, like a slasher, that, like a franchise or something silly? Um, <laughs> and so it started there. And then as I started to develop it, I realized I didn't really want to personally go that slasher route and always wanted it to be a feature but like I said it was my second short film and felt like I barely knew what I was doing at that point at all <laughs> with making even a short so I knew I needed more experience so we just started with the short knowing that we wanted to expand it eventually but it all happened so fast so we kind of wish that we had written the feature back then like from the start but mm. yeah the 
I learned like I feel like how to make a movie while making the stylus short. I was going to ask, did, did the concept come from some kind of deep-seated resentment that you have toward <laughs> no. your your clients as a hairstylist? <laughs> no, um, people always ask this, and I know it's hilarious and morbid. Um, some of my clients do get a little bit scared, I think, when they find out about the movie that aren't like horror fans like us. Um, <laughs> but it's really just more of a like write what you know kind of a thing, and then also a from a low budget perspective, it's smart because I have access to a salon. I, the location, the like, and like the understanding of it and like being able to do it in a realistic way. I, I thought mm -hmm. it would be cool to be able to make something that a hairstylist could watch and be like that they're doing that the right way. Um, Cause that's not, I feel like very common. There's so many like photographers in movies and they're just like taking pictures and they don't even stop. And I'm like, stuff like that, that kills me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Was it always the idea of taking the scalps, taking the, the hair? Um, was that always yeah. what was going to take place or was there ever a, an iteration where it was just more of a direct slasher stabbing, killing people, stacking the bodies somewhere? It was, I think, always about the hair, which was a very like leather face. Mm -hmm. inspiration for me i'm a huge chainsaw texas chainsaw fan <laughs> um because i first like my first vision of of the i of like the character was her in like this room like her lair which is like in the movie but um kind of like where all the scalps were on the wall like hunting trophies and she was wearing one like lost in that personality um so that was just kind of the base of the idea so when you set out to make the short of the stylist, was your plan always to eventually turn it into a feature? Yeah. Um, I say I wish we had written it kind of at the same time, only because when the short released, we had a lot of interest in a feature. Yeah. Um, it's like people could sense that's what we wanted to do, but I didn't have it ready to show people at that moment. And that's that's now like five years, four years ago. and. Well, I always wonder, like, could we have made it soon? Now that we've made it, I feel a lot better. But in the last three, four years, I was just constantly, like, kicking myself. Like, I wasn't ready at that moment. Um, they say you need to be prepared for success, like, prepared for your best case scenario, mm -hmm. which is kind of impo <laughs> somewhat impossible. But <laughs> with stuff like, th with filmmaking, if you're trying to keep going, you really need to have that next thing to show people. Or if your short is like a proof of concept, you need to have that thing ready. So what was the process like? You put the short up and immediately did you get production companies writing and saying, do you have a feature script? We would like to finance it. How did that process work? We had, um, I, I traveled to a lot of the festivals that it played. We were fortunate. We got into some really exciting festivals with the film and, the traveling to the festivals, you know, is kind of like the celebration at the end of all of it. And it's, I think, really valuable for a filmmaker that the networking that you that happens at these places is cannot is worth everything to go to them. Um, because being there, even with especially a short film, there's like normally a block of shorts playing. If you're the filmmaker that's there with your movie, everyone remembers you and your movie. It's just mm -hmm. these kind of things, not to mention who you'll meet in the industry. But um this stylist played in Montreal at Fantasia. And um, after our screening, 
we just had lots of people asking they have a market there so like all the industry is there at least for a specific weekend and um we were lucky to play in that weekend and just lots of people that i got to meet which were people it production companies and whatnot asked if there was a script ready and there was not yet but um i did meet like a very valuable person that weekend who is still in my life of Peter Van Steenberg, who's now a manager at XYZ Films, but he's an agent then. And he's really mentored me the last four or five years. And But I learned from that experience that had we had the script then, it's all about like that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone, how short attention spans are now. Yeah. Right. That's finally why we were, we ended up crowdfunding the movie because we were trying to get it financed the, like, hollywood way for a long time and it's like we can't really wait any longer the short came out so long ago we need to make this movie now (laughs) i can't wait any longer what were some of the creative challenges you faced when you sat down to flesh out the stylist from short to feature length it was um it was very challenging to figure out like really base how much to tell and um was it I mostly battle with was it going to be enough for like the viewer who wants everything explained to them, which I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I didn't want to go back and tell her like childhood. I didn't want to do flashbacks and a lot of examples that I turned to that I felt were similar, like anti-hero stories about crazy people or killers. They often do that to fill it in. Um, So we try, I didn't, i didn't want to do that from the start but we tried a version of a of a script with it and Mm -hmm. so it was like a good year or two that we were really putting it together and trying to figure out how much to go back i always knew i wanted the movie to be about kind of the end of this claire's career as a as a killer um, whatever that means like her downfall i didn't want it to be the start of it i wanted Mm -hmm. it to be the end and because that's kind of what the short was to me and So I was just really like, I think I battled with doing what I wanted to do and what I felt like everyone wants to know. Why is she this way? What happened to her exactly? Um, Which still happened, is going to happen no matter what. Um, But that was one of the biggest things. But I, at one point, the ending dawned on me, the wedding. And I was like, once you have an ending, I feel like you have this direction so you can figure out how you get there. But um, Mm Mm-hmm. I did always know like the portion of her life I wanted it to be about, but it was hard to know how much to tell and not tell. And yeah, are people going to be upset about it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I commend you on, on utilizing the same performer for the short and feature. A lot of times when um, a a project shifts to being a feature and I've seen it happen even to friends of mine, they're not invited (laughs) along to be in the bigger project. Did you always know you wanted the same actress to play Claire? Absolutely. Um, Najara Townsend, she's incredible. And really, I felt like we were lucky to have her on the short. I saw her in that film Contracted. And mm-hmm. I, I saw that at a, at a festival screening. I got to meet her. And it was like a year later that I was thinking about the short. But I feel like we owe so much of the stylist working to her performance and it not being 
campy or silly because what the stylist does is admittedly over the top and not super believable but she plays it so grounded and that's that's exactly what I wanted I wanted her to feel real and her emotions to feel real but what she does is very theatrical and I battled with that writing it because I didn't want it to be silly when it came to life and I think we owe like all of that to Najara and so to pre replace her, I would, I you could like suggest some like crazy famous actress. I'd be like, hell no, we're not replacing Najara. <laughs> yeah. But with the the whole, also the whole team from the short, I look at it like, uh, we're like we're like well we're all a film family now, but it's also like a loyalty thing that all these people made the short with me they put their time we gave everyone the, from the short the first chance to work on it again like it's all the That's same cool. post-production the That's editor great. the composer the colorist um the same cinematographer production designer so it's also all these people who knew the film for that long so it, i think that the film benefited from that so what were some so what were some ways that the feature stretched you as a director um even if it's just technically uh, if there was a sequence that was uh, the logistics were harder to work out than anything you dealt with on your shorts. Oh my God. <laughs> There's a lot in this movie. Because <laughs> um, all my shorts are just mostly like two or three people at most in a in a room. <laughs> I feel like work, acting, working with actors wise. And um, so it was intimidating on days where we have, we have multiple scenes with, you know, a lot of extras and it was interesting, though, I was very, I'm a very anxious person. I realized this whole movie is truly just about my anxiety <laughs> in <laughs> hindsight. But um, so I'm worried about every little thing. We had an amazingly huge crew on this movie, though, which I'm not used to. I'm used to, like, on shorts being my own assistant director most of the time. It's, you know, um, this we have, like, I have, like, a second, a second assistant director and all this production managing team. So... I didn't realize that, you know, once I got on set, there's a whole, there's a whole operation to this that like, I don't have to direct all the extras, but it, yeah. it's still very intimidating to have that many moving part. It's hard like just to stay focused on these little things. Um, but we also had totally opposite, like a very um, intimate and sensitive scene in the movie, which I want to talk about to spoil, but like, I was very concerned with it being, it's a very weird situation to be someone, I feel like if you're the writer or creator of an idea and then you're putting someone in this position, it's like, it feels like it's your fault. It's like this was your right. idea and they're doing this very maybe uncomfortable thing. So I was, I feel to the point that I would be like to my actor that if this scene is something you don't want to do. I want to work with you so bad that I'd be willing to think about taking it out. Like that's how important your mm. comfort is to me. So I was real, real cautious about a lot of stuff like that. And it, we don't even, it's, there's, you know, the scene, there's no nudity in our movie or crazy sex scenes or anything, but I would never want to approach something like that and someone be uncomfortable or whatever. So yeah. there's just a lot of conversations way ahead of shooting and prepare making sure everyone is comfortable and that everything's going to be run appropriately. So what types of stories are 
or what types of stories really excite you? Like what's the point of view and message that you really want to put out into the world with your films? Oh my, that's a heavy question. Um, <laughs> well, I battle with this because like the stylus is a very depressing movie, <laughs> with a sad ending, but I grew up loving sad movies and I've been trying to th- understand, am I trying, I don't want to, I'm not the kind of person that, I'm not a dark person who believes in, like, who, like, thinks everything is horrible and sad and wants to dwell on that kind of stuff. So it's interesting. I have, a lot of my movies have, like, these, tra- or ideas have like, these tragic endings, but I do love, like, Shakespeare tragic type stuff. But um, I'm most interested in people and real, in general. So with stories, it's about more about characters to me, um, which is why with, with Stylus, we always, we kind of geared it more towards being a character piece. And um, that's something I'm interested in in general. Like it wouldn't need to be horror. I love films about people and I especially love what we like anti-hero type stories because I think it's interesting to look behind, you know, like we can easily call someone a monster when we just hear they've done something bad, but that's not all a person is and i'm interested in i just people and like why they became this way and things aren't just black and white like that and um i maybe even have a a sympathy to a scary degree because i think that people aren't inherently evil and i'm just really interested in complicated confrontational characters so from your perspective what is the driving impulse behind claire's actions in the film like what is pulling her down this dark path well i always saw her as this is like this is her escape from her mental unwellness this is her attempt to just get out of it for a while while someone else might smoke weed she's gonna wear someone's (laughs) scalp um a very extreme way to try to feel what it's like to be someone else. Um, and I, I've always viewed her as not, this is morbid, but, um, and I, cause this is how I always seen Leatherface as the original Leatherface that, that neither one is like blood hungry, that they're doing what they have to do to get, they're kind of separate. Claire's doing what she needs to do to find this escape. The ki- killing is just like, the step to get to what she needs she doesn't necessarily enjoy it she's not like i want to go you know spill someone's blood tonight that kind of happens later in the movie because she totally spirals out of control but that's not her norm and um so she kind of battles with it but in a lot of i feel like interviews i've seen or read about real serial killers they don't they don't see themselves as just this evil thing. They kind of see that that is like one part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And not that, that I'm not justifying any real serial killers right. here, people, but um, <laughs> that's, that is something that they battle with. Like it's a compulsion that they can't control. And that's kind of how I viewed it with her. Like she's tried to stop many times and it's almost, it's like this des- destiny that she can't escape. Sweet. 
Well, congratulations on the thank film. Thank you. Um, and thank you again so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, if you're a member of the Alter Society, listen up. This week, we asked for your votes to decide what we'd watch next. The choices were Run, Possessor, and Porno. And you chose Porno. That's right, it's a movie on Shudder, and this is what it's about when five teen employees at the local movie theater in a small Christian town discover a mysterious old film hidden in its basement. They unleash an alluring succubus who gives them a sex education written in blood. That's what we're watching this week on The Altar Society. Porno, you can find it on Shudder. Watch it. Tell us what you think on the community tab of our YouTube channel or use the hashtag AlterWeekly on Twitter. Let us know what you think of porno and we might include your statements in next week's Alter Society. Before we sign off, here is what's coming up on Alter. Duermete Nino on December 18th. A religious mother of newborn twins is constantly awakened by the disturbing sound of her crying babies. Using a radio monitor to check on them at night, she encounters a series of unsettling events that might jeopardize even her own beliefs. Then, Whiteout on December 21st. When a young couple encounters a strange old man wandering in a snowstorm, they must decide if he needs help or if he has more sinister intentions. Then born again on December 23rd. When five amateur Satanists have their dark ceremony go horribly wrong, they call forth the holy shit moment of the millennium. That's all for this week's episode of Alter Weekly. Until next time, stay altered. You can catch new episodes of Alter Weekly every Thursday. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe and download. Alter Weekly is produced by Andrew Bowser with theme music by Sapphire Sandalo. Alter Weekly is executive produced by Stephen Michael and Lauren Palmer at Gunpowder and Sky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.